0: Well, we're going to look again at the book of James today. I'm excited to be back in James chapter 2. Last time we looked at verses 14 to 17, and today we're going to get uh, 18 to 20. This whole section goes from verse 14 to 26, um, but we are not going to cover the rest of it today. But I want to read the whole passage from 14 through 26 to make sure we set in our minds this entire section Uh, of of James' letter here, so we have an understanding of where he's going with this. So open your Bibles, and hopefully you have it open already. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, if it has no works, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, as we introduced last time in this passage, James provides an analysis of a false faith, a faith. That doesn't work. A faith that is dead. A faith that is useless. And last time I gave you the outline four failures of a false faith. I'm scrapping that outline. I decided I don't like it. <laughs> so if you remember that outline four failures of a false faith uh, thank you for remembering but uh, now we're going to something else. Why did I switch up? Uh, I don't think it was theologically incorrect But upon further study and how I was going to teach through this material, I don't think it walked us through the logic of the passage. And hopefully an outline walks you through the logic that is found in the passage itself. And that last one did not, I think, do that as well as it could have. I love saying four failures of a false faith, but uh, ultimately that was not the best. So instead, we're going to look instead, it's just uh, false faith unmasked. False faith unmasked. And we're going to see here five different points how false faith is shown to be for what it is, how a so-called faith is not a saving faith. It is a dead, it's a useless faith. James will show us that false faith. And we see here first in verse 14, false faith identified. Verses 15 to 17, false faith, (laughs) let me try and say it, false faith illustrated, and then number 3 false faith isolated now we looked at points 1 and 2 last time we'll review them briefly today but we're going to focus really on the point 3 there today false faith isolated next time we'll look at these last two sections genuine faith illuminated and then false faith incapacitated so that's kind of how we're going to walk through it this time and walking through this the logic of the passage again uh, it starts in verse 14 then with a false faith identified. And so what James does here is he wants to point something out, start this section, point out to the readers that everything that's called faith isn't always real faith. He says in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith Save him. And as he looks at faith, we see your focal point of this passage. Now, a lot of times people want to say, well, works is the focal point of this passage. But that's not the case. It's actually faith that is the center, and whether or not faith is real or not is whether it's a faith that results in good works. So the whole theme of the book of James is marks of genuine faith. And this fits right into that theme. If you remember now in your Bibles, if you see starting in verse one of chapter two, there verses one to thirteen, we talked about favoritism, or James pointed out how you can't hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That faith is incompatible with showing partiality, with treating some people better than another person. So his point, even beginning in verse one, is about. Faith, and and what faith should look like. And as he pointed out in those first 13 verses, a faith that treats some people better is not loving. It's not following the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, you become a judge with evil motives by loving one person more than another. Usually it's because of selfish gain is why you're putting one person to another. So he shows how that kind of attitude, that lack of love towards a fellow believer is a mark of false faith as well. That is not genuine faith. Genuine faith does not act that way. True faith will be seen in loving others without partiality. And now we see, starting in 14, a new section talking about a challenge to genuine faith, and that is a so-called faith that does not result And as we looked at last time, what is key to understanding this passage is how it's introduced here in verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, James is not right. What uses it if someone has faith but does not have works is not what he says. Someone in this case says he has faith. What is this: James will show he doesn't have true faith. This is an imposter faith. This is an imitation faith that this person has. So it's merely a claim of faith. That James is going to examine here. And in this case, this claim of faith does, does not come with good works. Someone says he has faith, but he does not have to go good deeds. You know, these are uh, synonymous here. It's basically, you know, a life that is obedient to God's commands. That's what is meant here by having no works. Someone that's obedient to God's commands. He follows that up with another rhetorical question in verse 14. Can that faith save him? And again, it's important to note, can that faith, can that faith, which we will see is a false faith, a dead faith, useless faith. And that it is this claim that's in question. So these rhetorical questions have an obvious answer. The answer is no. No, that faith can't save. No, that faith isn't of any use at all and so we see here the it's a matter of faith authenticity not whether we need to add works to it but is it genuine that's what James wants to look at now we know in life uh, we see imitations we see false things put forward as real Uh, I was in China and we often could buy fake products uh, when we lived there, which was entertaining at times for something to actually try and pass itself off. Sometimes it can be humorous uh, when you have a fake product, but sometimes it's a real tragedy. Someone, something that says it's, that it works and doesn't. One example of that is malaria medication. Now, some of you may know in in Africa particularly, but in other places of the world, malaria kills Many many people every year, up to a half million people a year, die from malaria, which is a tragic, tragic reality in the world today. Thankfully, there are medications today. There are med- malaria, there are pre- uh, medications to treat malaria. If you have malaria, you can get pills that will treat malaria that will keep you from having the most severe symptoms and even prevent death. But the problem is there's a lot of fake medication out there. It's a huge problem. A huge problem of these fake pills. They look just like the real pill. They're the same size. They even have the little stamped name of the company on there. But it's fake malaria medication because these companies produce it real cheaply, and they just want to make a lot of money off of people. It is estimated, and this is according, according to a Forbes magazine article in 2022, that 116,000 people die in sub-Saharan Africa each year with malaria drugs. Over 100,000 people die each year because of counterfeit fake malaria drugs. It's tragic. A tragic situation going on. And countries are trying to clamp down on this, uh, trying to do their best to stop all of this imitation, malaria medication from going out. But it's tough. It's difficult to hunt all these things. It's legitimate. And a lot of testing has to be done to show whether it's the real thing or not. Well, this tragic situation of fake malaria medication, people dying from it, is such a good illustration of a fake faith, an imitation, false faith. Because people say, oh, it, it looks the same. Someone says they have faith. Someone may work a faith, and yet it's a faith that doesn't work. And just as the malaria medication that does not work ends in many deaths, a faith that doesn't work results in many people facing God's wrath for eternity. So we need to be so careful. I think uh, we can know just intuitively that this situation with malaria medications is tragic people have Gone to hell because of a false faith than people who died because of a false malaria medication. So it's a very sober warning that we have here on a false faith. And that's why James wants his readers to hear it. That's why the Holy Spirit put it in Holy Scripture for us so that we can examine our own hearts whether we have a false faith or not. Identified in verse 14. Next. We also looked at last time a false faith illustrated. A false, fi- false faith illustrated. Uh, following the rhetorical questions he mentioned in verse 14, now he provides an illustration, and this is a shocking illustration. It's a jarring illustration, and it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to read this short story and go, you got to be kidding. Me. So, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So in this illustration, there's a a person in the church, a brother or sister, in need. And it says they're without clothing. They don't have adequate clothing to get through. It's perhaps cold, they don't have clothing. Or they don't have daily food, not enough food to get through that very day without being terribly hungry. And you say, well, I hope, uh, hope you're warm and filled. I hope things go well with you. I'll see you later and do absolutely nothing for that person. What use is that? It is a statement of compassion. I, I care about you. I want you to be warm and filled. But it's a false compassion, isn't it? It's false because it wasn't followed up by any action on the person to help the person in need. The brother and sister is left there still without the food and clothing. And to say be warm and be filled and yet provide nothing, that, just, that wasn't real compassion, it was compassion. In the same way, James says, that is what false faith is like. It is a profession without any action, and it is equally as useless as this false compassion is. And so James uses the absurdity of this false compassion and how, how appalling it is to us, naturally disgusting to us about that. Faith that is false is just as disgusting. Faith that is false is abhorrent to God as well. And we talked, too, this is primarily used as an illustration in this verse, but certainly we need to take note of this, for Scripture in many places speaks to caring for those in need. So there is application even in this illustration. But now after James has identified false faith, and he has illustrated false faith here, in verses 15 to 17, we're going to see in verses 18 to 20, false faith isolated. That false faith is something that becomes isolated. And let me read this again. You can look in your text there. I'll say, you have. I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, here's another rhetorical device that James uses here. The meaning is relatively clear in this passage, isn't it? We know what James is getting at here. We know that James is saying, look, works must accompany faith, that real faith has works. But that doesn't mean there aren't interpretive issues here. In fact, there are a number of interpretive issues in this passage. And I want to walk through those with you just to make sure we understand exactly what's being communicated in God's Word. But I think we know where James is driving here. That faith without works is useless. So the first interpretive question... Well, I'll put it under two headings is what we're going to look at. First, the thing we'll see is good works makes genuine faith visible. Faith is invisible naturally, isn't it? you trust it, and that is something that is invisible to the naked eye. But good works then reveal true faith. It makes genuine faith visible. And secondly, orthodoxy alone does not prove genuine faith. So these will be points A and B. eventually here as we walk through this. But let's look at the first one here. Good works make genuine faith visible. So it starts off here by saying, but someone may well say. Now, the question arises, well, who is this someone? (laughs) Who is this someone that's speaking here? Is this an ally of James, or is this someone who's objecting to James' argument? Is this someone who says, I agree with you, James, or someone saying, I think you got this wrong? Now, there's some commentators who will say this is an ally, because if you look at that, the person is saying, you have faith and I have works. So this person is saying, I have works. Now, James is emphasizing that works are needed. So isn't this an ally then, if someone's saying I have works. But I think there's a couple reasons to not see this as an ally of James, but to see this as someone who's objecting to James's argument. And there's a couple reasons for this. It's very uncommon in rhetorical arguments to add a hypothetical ally to one's position. When someone is explaining something, you don't, nec- you don't need to bring an ally in to say something <laughs> argument because you're able to give your argument yourself. What is often happens, and we see it in Scripture many times as well, that you say, well, I know this objection is coming, so let me just state it right here and let me answer that objection. So it would be very uncommon to be an ally. So it's not likely. But secondly, and I think even a stronger reason not to see this as an ally to James, but an objector, is that in the Greek, it use adversity to be the word, beginning of the sentence here, and in English we translate it, but. Um, but someone may well say. And we see that kind of uh, formula, but someone will say, very commonly in rhetorical arguments of that time. And in fact, we also see it in Scripture as well. In 1 Corinthians 15.35, it's almost the exact Greek wording where when Paul is describing the resurrection, he brings up the argument of an objector saying, but someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what body do they come? So there is good reason to see this as someone that's objecting to James's argument saying, James, wait a minute. This isn't correct. And so James will use this hypothetical objector as a tool to further explain what to explain about faith without works. But then we immediately run into a second question then. How much of what follows this introductory formula is part of the quote? So the introductory formula, but someone will say, we know, okay, here comes a quote. That's the start of something. But how far does that go? You see, in the Greek manuscripts, they didn't have our quotation marks. And so we're left to kind of figure out, okay, where does this quote end? Well, there's a number of options uh, that commentators give. And I mean a lot of options that uh, that people want to put forward, whether it's part of a verse, this whole verse, or many verses. But two of the top ones are these. And this is how the quotations uh, are shown in the New American Standard and LSB, the Legacy Bible. It's the whole of verse, or the remaining of verse, uh, of 18 there. You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Or, the way that the ESV has it, is just that first part there. You have faith, and I have works. And then a new sentence. Now, James speaking in reply to the other, Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So those are really two of the top um, options, I think, in looking at that. And as we study that, as we see, okay, how does this make sense and what James is saying and what an objector might say? Well, I think we can see that the second half of that statement, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, isn't that exactly James's argument? I'll show you my faith by my works. Yeah, that's pretty much what he's, his point here, isn't it? That faith is made visible by works. We've already seen that in the identification, verse 14, the illustration that faith is made visible by works. case, I would say the ESV probably is more correct in where they have the quotation marks. Don't throw away your New American Standard Bibles <laughs> or your LSBs. definitely don't throw those away. Uh, in fact, buy another one. Um, no, but uh, no, uh, but but probably it's more correct to see it as James answering the objection in the second half of the verse um, and saying this most. Uh, this is what's going on. But if that's done, then then what is the objection that's being raised? So that's the the third and very important part. In fact, most important interpretation question is: What is the objection then? The objection, then, we're saying is, you have faith and I have works. Now, again, those who want to say this is an ally of James would say, well, that doesn't seem like an objection if someone is saying, I have works. And so we have to see, then, either the objector is defending his good works compared to the faith of James, or the objector is arguing that faith and works can be separated. Now, the first option is, again, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because he's working against the person who fails to show any good works in alignment with his faith. So an objector is not going to go, well, I have good works. No, the objector that he's answering is the one who says, hey, a person can have faith and a person can have good works. And that's what's going on here. The objector is saying that someone may have faith and someone may have works, that it can be two, two totally separate things. It's very different from that. He's saying you can't separate those two. You can't split a genuine faith and a life that is in alignment with that, a life that does good deeds, a life that's in obedience to Christ. If you have genuine faith, that will always go together. The objector is saying you can have one without the other. But James answers that objection clearly, saying, show me your faith, without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And he says here, show me. To show means to demonstrate or to exhibit. And James says, show me your invisible faith without works. And as we already said, how can you possibly, You 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 can say you have faith all day long, but how do you demonstrate it? Well, you demonstrate it by a life of obedience to Christ. You demonstrate it by doing good works. Genuine faith can only be proven in that way. So that's the first half of this section, verse 18, that genuine faith is only proven by good works. Next we'll see, starting in orthodoxy alone does not prove genuine faith. Orthodoxy alone doesn't prove genuine faith. And this is a further response to the one who's objecting. The one who's saying, I can have faith and not have works. Or one person has works, another person has faith. The second answer to that is, orthodoxy alone does not prove genuine faith. And he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. To the objector who claims to have faith, James assumes that his professed faith, orthodox, that is right, correct doctrine here. James assumes that, okay, you're believing what is true. Now, sometimes when we debate someone, and in this case, it's a hypothetical person, but sometimes we just assume the worst about the other person. And we destroy uh, kind of a straw man, uh, an argument that doesn't really exist. But James is giving the objector the benefit of the doubt, that his faith, that he does believe that God is one. And to believe God is one, that is... In Jewish prayer, a core part of Jewish prayer is the Shema. And the Shema is something done in Jewish prayer every morning and evening that starts in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the word Shema comes from the Hebrew word hear, to hear. So that's how it starts. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. And that is a common prayer by Jews and very orthodox in their understanding. Now, we, of course, also hold to that truth, right? It's in our scriptures. That is where uh, the believer, us Christians, would agree completely with the Jews in that there is one God. And so to say that this is uh, Bedrock of the Jewish faith, well, it's the bedrock of the Christian faith as well. There is but one God. We exist in three persons. We know that and understand that from the rest of revealed scripture. But it is absolutely true that there is one God. And to say then that James is allowing for the fact that his objector agrees with that, he's basically saying, I'm assuming your doctrine in general is correct. I'm not. Saying your issue is your doctrine. You can say the right things. You can have the right theology. You can have the right beliefs. But even if you do even if you do the right things, but it hasn't changed your life, then that faith is worthless. That faith is dead. And to believe God is one, monotheism, one God, it's good. And when he says there, you do well, He literally means you do well. That is a good thing. But he also means that is not nearly enough. That is insufficient. Accurate theology is good, but it is nowhere near enough. And what's the proof of this? What proof does James provide that just believing the right things is not enough? Well, the fact that the demons also believe. They also have right theology. I mean, thats it's funny to think that, that, oh, demons have good theology. I mean, that's better than a lot of liberal seminaries uh, and churches around the world have. That demons have better theology than they do. But it's true. They understand that God is one. And they in fact, a lot of their theology is very good. In the Gospels, we see that when Jesus encountered demons, they confessed Orthodox theology. The demons recognized the deity of Christ. They recognize his power and they recognize his authority. There's a couple of passages here. Uh, first in Luke 8. You could turn there if you want. Luke 8, verses 26 to 28. And this is uh, when Jesus was with his disciples, and they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city of the demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. And was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, this is the demon-possessed man, seeing Jesus cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And now the passage goes on to talk about how Jesus cast out the demons from this man. But. We see here, what does the demon through this person say? What business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you do not torment me. This demon knew that Jesus was God come in flesh. To say son of means God, he is of the same nature as God. And he understood that he could do that, that he had the power to torment the demon. And the demon knew that he had the authority to do so because he's begging Jesus not to do it. The demon understood exactly who Jesus was. We see this uh, similar type of thing in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. Read that passage. You can turn there if you'd like as well. Mark 1, 21 to 24. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, Jesus did, and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And again, we see a demon here recognizing Jesus for being God in the flesh, and he was very afraid of what Jesus might do them. And so... We see then that demons in these, they shudder when they think of God. And when they see, they come face to face with God, they were afraid. They said, do not torment me. Do not destroy me. They have the right belief. And in fact, in some ways, their reaction is right too. They have a healthy fear of God in the sense of they fear what he could do to them. Now, they don't have the fear of God that Scripture calls us to, which is a fear of God that drives us to obedience and a fear of God that wants us to draw closer to God. They have a fear of God that wants to drive them away from God. But the point, the main point that James is making here is that, look, you can have orthodox beliefs. You can say, I believe God is one. You can say, I believe in the deity of Christ. You can say, I believe in faith alone, not good works save me. You can have all the right doctrine and not be saved. It's not just believing a set of facts where someone is saved. It is a life that is changed by God. So faith is not merely a profession. Faith is not merely an orthodox set of beliefs. You can have these things and not have genuine faith. A claim of faith, even coupled with good theology, can still be a counterfeit faith and one that does not save. So how can an invisible faith be visible? How can we see whether it's true? Well, we know true faith is shown by a changed life. And we know that just in our daily lives, right? If we say we will act in a way that aligns. Uh, I've used this illustration in sharing the gospel with people. And uh, I think it's just a simple one to use. But if someone told you, look, a bomb is going to land on your house in an hour from now. I got this information from the military. They found out. I don't know why it's targeted. A bomb is going to land on your house an hour, in an hour from now. And the person says to you, you know what? I totally believe you. Absolutely. You know what? I'm sure that you're right about that. That must be true. I agree. All right, now I'm going to go home and uh, sit on the couch and watch uh, TV for a few hours. Well, do they really believe? Well, no, they don't. And that's an illustration, isn't it? Well, if someone believes, they're going to do something about it. If you really think something is true, then you will live in a way that accords with that. And the same is true with faith. If you actually do believe in Christ, if you actually have put your faith in him, your life will be different. You won't just go on living as before. Just a section here. By a very blunt, very strong statement, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And the way that's worded there, are you willing to recognize, it's almost as if uh, the wording there is saying, look, it's obvious, you're just reluctant. You, the truth is in front of your face. It is a willful decision not to believe that this is true. And he calls him foolish. Just completely stupid. I mean, because it's a rejection, it's a willful rejection of what is true. And then he says, the faith without works is useless. And there's a word play there in the Greek between the word works. The two words sound very similar. It's almost like saying faith without works doesn't work, um, is the best way we can translate that. But he says, to do such a thing is is foolish to trust in merely a profession or merely a set of beliefs if your life doesn't change. Now, as we've been looking at this passage, it's certainly to understand James. It's okay, well, that means I need to have faith in God, and then I need to do works to be saved. That is not what this is saying, and I really want to emphasize that because there are many, particularly those in the Roman Catholic religion, that will say, well, that's what James is saying, that works is added to be saved. But that is not what he's saying. It says, if your faith is genuine, if it is there in the seed, it will eventually bear fruit. And that's just going right off of what Jesus said, is it not? He said in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 20, every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you'll know them by their fruits. We know a good tree because of of what happens in the spring, that, that the fruit comes. But if there is no fruit, no good fruit, it's not a good tree. If there is no change in a person's life, there is no genuine faith. Now, we'll see next time about Rahab and Abraham about their genuine faith and how that is much different than this false faith. But I wanted to answer some questions, some misunderstandings that could come in this passage. And this is just from knowing some individuals and having some conversations where I think we can go the wrong way on. And I think back to my, I had a good friend in high school. His, dude, I went to a Christian high school. Uh, just not far from here, go Crusaders. All right, you got a one Crusader over there? All right, Brett. Which I think back to Crusaders, kind of a funny name. But anyway, his dad, so my friend professed Christ and and I think he's a believer, but his dad also professed Christ, but boy, lived a very worldly lifestyle. And I talk about that with my friend and he said he had a conversation with his dad and his dad said, look, hey, Romans ten nine, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Hey, I call Him Lord. I believe He raised from the dead. I'm saved. I can live any way I want to live. And He was using that verse as His defense to say, "Look, it's not required for me to change my life. I'm saying He's Lord. I'm confessing He rose from the dead." But what what did He not see just in this very verse? The word Lord means something. What does Lord mean? It means master. It means the one you obey. And to say, well, I'm confessing that. Well, no, you're not. You're mouthing the words, but you're not truly confessing that. And then verse 9 is followed by verse 10. Romans 10.10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. It will result in righteousness when you believe. So to say I believe a couple things and that's enough is something that is very much still happening today. I believe the right things. I'm sure that's enough. I'm sure that's going to get me in. But that is not what saving faith is. So when I think of application, that's the first question I, I want to make sure we address because we can talk about what faith isn't so many times. But what is faith? This passage describes what false faith looks like one that does not result in a changed life, but what is genuine faith in what? Now, we can look at faith in different components of faith. Faith does include coming to the knowledge of the truth. There are certain truths that we have to believe. We need to believe, yes, that God is one. We need to believe who God is. We need to agree that Jesus Christ is God, come in the flesh, And that he has come to die for our sins. That although you and me and every person has failed to live obediently, Jesus lived the perfect life, took on the punishment that we deserved, died on a cross for our sin, and then did not stay dead but rose again to show victory over death. Death And faith in him is the only way to have a right relationship with God. That is a knowledge that must be there for saving faith. So there is the knowledge of the truth, but there's also an embracing of the truth. It's not enough to say that truth on the page is right. It needs to be said that truth on the page applies to me. It's not just that all men are sinners, but I'm a sinner. Saving faith is not just academic, it is personal. So faith includes an embracing of the truth, application of it. And third, faith, trust in the work of Christ is the only hope of salvation. To trust in Christ, to say, look, Lord, I am giving my life to you. I'm committing to you because there's no way on my own I can be saved, that I could come to a right relationship with you. Faith must include those things. No works are involved here, and even that, even the faith itself is a gift of God. We can't even say that, okay, well, I've Worked up my faith enough to believe. No, God has given you that faith. Uh, I appreciate the quote that's made, the only thing that we've added to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That is the only thing that we add to our own salvation. It is all a work of God. And that is what saving faith is. So when we say that, when Scripture says, when James says that a changed life is necessary, That is the fruit of faith. It's not with faith that gets you saved, but that is what happens. When you naturally, when you've embraced the truth that Jesus is your Savior, you will want to live for him, and your life will change. So let us make sure we always go back to what what is faith all about? And to put it simply, it's the gospel, right? It's the gospel, and how... Do I embrace the gospel? That is true faith. The first question that may arise, the second one, is this. This passage teaches that a person must live out good works to demonstrate salvation, but what if I stumble and sin? Have I shown that I don't have genuine faith? How often can a person sin and still have genuine faith? What we must not do when we read this passage is think, okay, this means I need to live a better life. I need to be a better Christian. Or it, it means that, look, Christians never sin. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying Christians never sin. 1 John 1, 8-10 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Christians at times do stumble into sin. To claim otherwise is lying. Any Christian who says, I've become perfected in this world is clearly ignoring these verses in 1 John as well as others, but obviously ignoring his own life because he's seeing the sin in his own heart. And praise God that when you do sin as a believer, that there is forgiveness. It says here, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I think that's one of the first verses I memorized uh, in a wanna here as a kid, and one that I never want to forget, because how precious, isn't it? That if we confess, God is ready to forgive. He stands ready to forgive us when we fail. So when we study this passage in James, we shouldn't Walk away thinking, well, I guess you're saying that it's only perfect people who are saved, that always doing good works, never sinning. Well, that's not true. Even believers do sin. The question is not whether or not you, the question is not whether or not you may sin. The question is, will you repent after you sin? What do you do when you fall into sin? Do you repent? That is the mark of a Christian, not the perfect person, but the person who is continually repenting. Confessing your sins and repentance is not just the starting line for it is daily in the Christian faith. We need to go back to that and continue to repent. God examine my heart. Where am I sinning? Will you forgive? And he will. Now, of course, we balance that with a Christian will not be characterized by a sinful life. In first John three, verses four to six, so in the same letter that John wrote, it says, that Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that when he you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now you may wait a minute, didn't chapter 1 just say, and now you're saying no one knows God and sins. How do you balance these two things? What's going on? Well, it's important to note that in 1 John chapter 3, 4 to 6, he talks about the one who practices sin. And it's an ongoing sin that is talked about in chapter 3 here, that it's, you're characterized by someone who does not obey God, that you're continuing to live a life no different than someone in the world. If your life has not been changed, you don't know Christ. Now, it's not to say that you're changed into perfection. Praise God and glorification, when we get to heaven, that will happen one day. And we will be free from this bodies these bodies of sin and its corruption and its effects. But that's not now. For now, that's progressively becoming more like Christ until that day when we're glorified. But we haven't reached it yet. But a true believer will have marks of growing in Christ-likeness. Will have marks of putting to death sin in life and putting on righteousness. So, this passage is saying that you must live a perfect life. I think what we also need to determine, this isn't a passage that we go around using as a hammer on people either. This is to examine our own lives and say, am I truly in the faith? We don't want to run around and tell everyone they're not a Christian because I haven't seen enough good works. Is there some scale that we're measuring how many good works a person may have? Now, we may... Go to someone and say, hey, I'm concerned for you, and I ask you to examine your heart because I don't see a life that's been changed by the faith that you claim to have. You say you follow Christ, but, boy, it's concerning. Please examine your heart. We can do that, but first and foremost, we need to look to ourselves and ask, am I following Christ? Well, a third application or a third question that we need to answer is this. If I currently lack assurance of my salvation, what do I do? If good deeds demonstrate genuine faith, do I need to strive harder to do more good works to validate my own salvation? And this wrong thinking plagues many in the church. That, you know what, sometimes I to do more to strengthen my assurance. To make sure that I'm saved, to know I'm saved. I better volunteer more, I better serve others more, because I want to have that confidence that I'm saved. That doing more ministry, being more faithful, or doing more good works will make these nagging doubts go away. But that's not the right takeaway from this passage either. It definitely identifies a false faith that does know works, but this doesn't tell us the path to know whether we have a real faith or to have, grow an assurance. The way to grow an assurance is not being a better Christian, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to do more. I'm going to be a better Christian. That's how I'm going to have assurance. That's not the way forward. The, the way forward is pursuing the love of God. If you doubt about your salvation, don't try and do more to make yourself feel better that you're saved. Like, okay, I read in James, not a changed life. I don't have real faith. I better do more. It's like to tape fruit onto a tree. That's not a fruit tree. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to show I'm a Christian. I'm going to get all this fruit up here. And we're just putting fruit on a tree that's not a fruit tree. No. Instead, seek God. Seek loving God. First of all, seek understanding God's love toward you. Study the character of God. Study His works. And particularly in the person of Christ. Study Christ in his great love, that Christ has sacrificed everything on your behalf. The amazing grace of God. The boundless love of Christ. The kindness of the Lord toward you every day in in patience and gentleness. Think deeply on who God is, on what Christ has done. Seek after that, and in turn, what will happen? You will grow in your love toward God. When you contemplate meditate on god's great love and what he has done his graciousness his kindness if you truly absorb that you will in turn love god more and then what happens when we love god if you love god what will you do he will obey him but the love of god is i mean we saw earlier in the james chapter one i want to point this out um when it was talking about trials, and we looked at verse twelve, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. This is a believer responding well, which the Lord has promised him in that verse. And we looked at that before. A believer can be summarized. Another word for a believer is one who loves God. One who loves God. That's what we need to pursue. Love God with all that you are. And when you do that, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love God, you'll want to obey me. You just just want to bring joy to your father. You're not wanting to add good works so you feel better about yourself. You are seeking to love God and obey him. And when you obey out of love, 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's how you know when you're doing good works from the right heart, because his commandments are not burdensome. It's not that, oh, I guess it's a command that I don't engage in this sin, that I don't lie, that I don't um, look at inappropriate things, that I don't swear I got to cut those out because I have to to show I have faith. No, it's you love God, and I don't want to do those things. Those commands aren't burdensome. They're a joy to do because I love God. Knowing some faithful men of God that I've known for many many years, um, ones that are struggling even with assurance of their own salvation, even after decades. In fact, the faithful ministry um, can come away from the passage in James chapter two, thinking, "Well, I better keep doing work to genuine to demonstrate." Faith. But that's not the right way. Seek after God, appreciate who God is, and just seek to please Him in everything. And let the good works come from that. Come from your heart from God, from your love from God. Because he's certainly worthy of it, is he not? So, Well, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth in this passage. How false faith is so clearly shown. Lord, I pray that there's no one in this room, Lord, who holds on to some type of imitation faith. Lord, that is willing, that every person be willing to examine their life and say, you know what, have I, have I seen a change in my life because of you, Lord? And Lord, I pray that it would be the case. And Lord, for those who are struggling at times with doubts of their own salvation, Lord, I just pray that you would give them that commitment and heart to know you more, to um, know the fullness love of your, your character. And Lord, may that give them the joy uh, of who you are and the fact that you have saved them, God. Lord, again, we, we love you because you first loved us. And uh, pray that we would honor you because we love you. We ask in the name of Christ, amen.